Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. thinking uh, about a gracious justice as we continue to uh, talk about what it means to be a gracious citizen of the kingdom and uh, thinking of the Sermon on the Mount as sort of the finishing school for uh, Christians for the content of the kingdom and uh, as we're thinking about that we're going to talk a little bit about the concept of shalom this morning so you can kind of get your uh, Shalom brain and gear and uh, think about all the things you know about that concept and uh, I want to mention to you that uh, our technical director Chase Baker who uh, born and raised in this church and been on our staff for the last four or five years uh, has accepted a new position he's still going to be a part of our congregation but I don't know something about needing to make a living and I don't know <laughs> details details but uh, Chase uh, does all things technical here, so the fact that everything works and uh, we broadcast live right now, we're streaming to Facebook, and uh, I get calls frequently from churches saying, hey, can you help us out and tell us how to do it? And I say, well, I could, but Chase works here. Uh, <laughs> so now I can't say that anymore. <laughs> but would you uh, take time to be sure to say to him thank you? Uh, he's uh, upstairs in the studio as he is every Sunday at this time making sure everything works and runs and the crews that he has trained and prepared are going to continue to run everything but uh, he cuts video for us uh, if you've uh, enjoyed live updates on uh, from Africa that's all chase there aren't that many people that can uh, be in the field shooting video editing on a bus ride uploading so that you have live feeds here on Sunday mornings and uh, daily updates and so uh, obviously a little bit of a gap in our team, and uh, so pray for him, uh, God's blessing him and leading him in some places, but uh, do express your appreciation for uh, all that work that goes on and has gone on and uh, all this infrastructure that uh, he's been a key part of building, and so let him know you appreciate that when you get a chance. Shalom. Shalom is the official greeting, of course, uh, of Jews, and uh, it doesn't just mean peace. It means uh, the presence of good things uh, and the absence of bad things. It's, it's a holistic idea, not just that we are without conflict, but that actually the underlying things are resolved as well. And it's an important concept because there is an understanding in kingdom life that we're not just after the right outcomes, we're after the right motivations as well. We're not just looking for things to be okay on one end. We want the root causes to be cured and helped and, and put right. And, and that's not just about issues. That's about relationships too, which makes it more difficult. We want everybody to be right. <laughs> Amen? Sometimes we want others to be more right than we desire to be right ourselves. We, we figure most of the fault lies with them. And so the concept of shalom becomes sort of this checks and balances in which we are not only desiring the peace that is the outcome, but we're desiring the right things. There, there is this biblical expectation that when Messiah comes, when the messianic period comes, that there will be a complete change, that there will be this radical change in the nature of the creature, in the nature of the creature. Isaiah is talking about it in Isaiah 11, 
when he writes these words. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. So, so Isaiah is anticipating the Messianic era. He's saying when Messiah comes, we're not only going to have better outcomes, but the nature of the creature is going to be different, so much so that the lion and the lamb will lie down together. So much so that the very core nature of what we understand to be sort of the, you know, the food chain will get all mixed up. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. That's sad. (laughs) But such a change in the nature of the creature. And that that's sort of illustrated in Isaiah's prophetic words about these animals. But what he's saying is that's going to be true of human beings as well. That the knowledge of God will so cover the earth like the water covers the sea. That we'll all be immersed in this knowledge of God in such a way that the very nature of our creatureliness changes. And because the nature of the creatureliness changes, then obviously the outcomes become different. Because if you got all of our weird motivations and idiosyncrasies and odd things happening inside of us and you got them all fixed and resolved, then obviously we'd have different outcomes. This change, if you listen and watch, is not only something Jesus teaches, but it's something that he illustrates by the nature of his life, by the things that he chooses. Jesus, of all people, his entire life is is sort of a, Uh, an illustration of the kingdom of God. So, for example, in John chapter 4, we have this amazing story, and it's very early in John's gospel. And so, you know, while the Sermon on the Mount represents in Matthew's gospel sort of this radical kingdom change, in John's gospel, it is this story. It comes up right after that big theological opening, in the beginning was the word, and we parallel the story of Genesis and the coming of the light and all of that stuff that happens And then we get this story. Jesus is traveling from the north down to Jerusalem. And he comes into the land of Samaria. Now, a good devout Jew would have not entered the land of Samaria. Would have gone literally miles and miles out of the way to walk around the area of Samaria. And the belief was, because the Samaritans, uh, in the Jews' belief, were heretical. They had a heretical theology. They were immersed in some sort of pagan uh, amalgam, some sort of pluralistic Judaism, paganism, all that stuff. 
So that the belief was that if you even set foot in this place where these people practice this heretical behavior, you were somehow tainted. Your righteousness got tainted. And so the devout Jews walked around Samaria instead of through it. But in John 4, we have Jesus opening up. He just walks right in. But he doesn't just walk right in. He walks right in and he walks right up to the city of Sakar, and he goes to the well of the city that Jacob dug. And, and he arrives there, and there's a woman coming to draw water, a Samaritan woman coming to draw water in the middle of the day. And Jesus arrives there, and she shows up, and he speaks directly to her, would you get me something to drink? And she says, this is radically different. This is a change in the creatureliness of this moment. How is it that you, a Jew, are speaking to me a Samaritan woman. And he says, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. And she says, how will you get this water? You have nothing to draw with. And so they're entering into this conversation. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it, both he and his livestock? And he says, tell you what, go get your husband. (laughs) And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And he says, what you say is true. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the man you live with now is not your husband. And she says, I can see you are a prophet. (laughs) Awkward. And so she says, listen, I understand that you Jews believe that you worship your God on the mountain in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. But we Samaritans, we worship here on this mountain. So which is it? Who's right? Who is defining the theological fine points? Well, the Jews believed that the Samaritans were descendants that had been brought into Israel uh, by uh, the Babylonian king at the time of the exile. That they weren't Jewish at all, but they had just been brought in and planted there. The Samaritans believed them to be, to be the purest of the Jews. They believed that they were the actual people who were worshiping upon the original site of the mountain of God. They were the ones who had kept the religion pure. They were really the ones who were more Jewish than the Jews. The Jews believed that they had mixed whatever amalgam of Judaism with paganism. They knew historically that they had betrayed them to the Romans And they just didn't like each other at all. And this woman is asking a theological fine point. She's saying, who's right? Whose belief system is correct? Is it you Jews or is it us Samaritans? And Jesus says, listen, the Jews worship what they know. And you Samaritans worship what you do not know. But a time is coming and has now come when true believers will worship the the Lord in spirit and in truth. In other words, all of that stuff that you argue about, all of that underlying conflict, all of the racial prejudice, all of the gender prejudice, all the stuff that goes into this radical moment. Jesus is saying, it's not about any of that. It's about the condition of your heart and the spirit. It's about your creatureliness. And she says, I know when Messiah comes, he will tell us and teach us all things. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. The time has come. The time has come not for different outcomes, but for a change in the creatureliness, for shalom. Not just the presence of good things, but the healing of the broken things. It's time to put it 
altogether. Now, this section of the Sermon on the Mount is going to deal with this. That's the nature of what he's talking about. That's what he has in his mind. That's, that's the teaching background. When Messiah comes, we're not going to have, just have better outcomes, but we're going to have a change in the creatureliness of what it means to be human. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me that makes a lot of sense because I would like to have better outcomes. I'd like to have better behaviors. I'd like to have a better attitude. But there's a creatureliness to me that makes that difficult. Yeah. I think we all find it, don't we? I mean, if we had a list of things right here and we said, here's what I'd like to change about myself. These are the things I'd like to be different. This is how I'd like my relationships to work different. This is how I'd like life to work different. This is how I'd like, I'd like to have different outcomes. But the problem with the outcomes is I'm always over here trying to manipulate some deeper part of me to behave itself. <laughs> what I really need is a change of heart and spirit so that the things that I want are different, so that my reactions are different, so my responses are different. That's what I'm really about. So that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he's thinking and teaching about as he opens up for us this section on the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, we'll be in for a couple of weeks, so you've got to kind of keep that in your head. The, the, old, the old way of thinking in Judaism is that when parents are teaching their children, they're teaching their children to get specific outcomes. And uh, that's a good thing. But they're not just teaching to get specific outcomes. They're teaching so that their character is formed. Amen? Now, I grew up in a home where my parents insisted on outcomes. Anybody else grow up like that? I mean, my parents were going to get their outcomes. You understand what I'm saying? And they, they believed that, I don't know where they heard it, probably a preacher somewhere said something about spare the rod and spoil the child. And they, they did believe in the rod, although it was a belt, not a rod. Anybody else? Okay, you can't turn them in. So. But as a small child, I don't, know, I don't remember how I knew. Well, I probably do, but... I don't remember my parents ever sitting down and having a conversation necessarily. I just understood that they were going to get the outcomes or something was going to hurt them more than it hurt me. <laughs> Metaphorically speaking. <laughs> and so they were going to get the outcomes. But in the Old Testament especially, we read a lot about parents, particularly in Proverbs. If you want to read a lot about parental training... There's a lot of that in the Proverbs, and, and so they're going to get the outcome, but that's not, what, that's not what their primary motivation is. Their primary motivation is to change the creatureliness of their children so that the outcomes are the natural outflow. We see a little bit of that in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor, and, uh, win favor and a good name in the sight of God and in the sight of man. So, so I want you to be different. I don't want just outcomes. I want them to be written on your heart. I want you to be changed from the inside out. I want this forming of your outcomes to result in a change in your character. And that's what Jesus is speaking to. Matthew 5, 20. 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teacher of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Really important to continue to remember how this uh, whole teaching is structured, the tenses in which it is spoken, so that Jesus isn't saying someday, if you live well, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is an advent of the later church. Jesus is saying, when you live this way, you are participating in the kingdom come, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. You don't have to wait to die to participate in the kingdom of heaven. You can do so now. You just have to join in, and unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not be participating. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. That is a weird collection of things, isn't it? I mean, you know, he seems to skip around in that conversation in ways that we end up going to jail for the rest of our lives or something. I'm like, wait a minute, whoa, slow down. Unless, and and this is an introduction to this section of teaching, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes of the law. This teaching will continue next week when he talks about adultery and he talks about divorce and he talks about making oaths. So just so he's talking about not outcomes necessarily, but he's talking about the creatureliness underneath that, the motivations underneath it. And so the first one that he speaks to is the issue of anger. He's going to talk about three things specifically in this sequence, anger, insult, and reconciliation. And so these are the three things that we we sort of settle in and think about together. This radical new messianic period is a place in which we say to one another, listen, you've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say do not be angry with your brother and sister. Interestingly, over time, this, the NIV, by the way, goes back to the oldest manuscripts, and uh, it is stated here exactly as it is written in the original language. So anyone who's angry, I tell you not to be angry with your brother and sister. Uh, later translations, and you may have one of these, it says, without cause. It's like, you know, we, we had this statement, do not murder, but you've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I tell you, if you're angry with your brother or sister, you're in danger of judgment. And that was just too much for us. <laughs> so we added, without cause. Somebody along the way went, yeah, that's too much, there. without cause. Because if you have a good reason to be angry, then it's okay. Amen? Because that's more palatable, isn't it? I mean... Who says you can't be angry with people? As long as a reason is valid, then it's okay, right? So Jesus says, you've heard it said that you're not supposed to kill somebody, but I'm telling you, I don't want you to be mad at them. Now, in Greek, there's two words for anger. One is thumos, from which we get the word thermal, you know. I feel like a little bit when I'm doing this, I feel like my big fat Greek wedding, you know. All words can be traced back to Greek. 
thumos, that means uh, the kind of anger that flares up. Uh, the, 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 picture, the word picture with this word is uh, throwing a match on a, a bed of straw. It flames up very quickly, but it burns out fairly quickly as well. It doesn't, you know, kind of a flash of anger. That is not the word used here. It's not that anger. This word is orge, and that means a, an anger we have held and nurtured and kept warm and held closely. We have guarded it. We have protected it. We have held it in. It is a part of us. It makes us feel safer. It makes us feel justified. And in the Jewish law, these two kinds of anger were dealt with differently, just like they are in our modern laws. A premedicated, premeditated, premedicated kind of anger. <laughs> That's a whole sermon in and of itself. <laughs> a premeditated kind of anger has a different level of responsibility than a flare-up of anger. So Jesus is speaking about this. That kind of anger that when you hold it in your heart and you feel justified in having it and you feel that you are, that you know, you have every reason to be angry and every right to be angry and your anger is a part of your protection and it helps form your identity because someone hurt you, someone did wrong, someone mistreated you. And I don't know about you, but for a lot of us, we, we find comfort in our anger. We find that it gives us a reasonable place of refuge. When someone has wronged us, when someone has done something to us, when we, have, we are righteously indignant about things. And the problem with that is that it, it's really hard in our creatureliness to know when we're right and when we're wrong. Amen? I mean, obviously, someone else has a different opinion about that anger. Someone else has a different story about what happened. Someone else has a different perspective. But, of course, we assume we're right because these are our feelings and our understanding. So Jesus is speaking right into this. We're talking shalom. We're not talking just the absence of something. We're talking about the presence of something. We're not just talking about giving up on the anger. We're talking about making things right as far as it goes with you. This is not the last teaching on reconciliation in the Bible. You know, there are some other things that go with it. But he's speaking to us and he's saying, listen, you, your righteousness must be more. We, we've got to not just have the right outcome. We've got to have the right motive. We've got to say, God, change my creatureliness. Change something in me. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to walk around in this condition. And then he says, okay. And by the way, not only should you not be angry... Whoever says raka to their brother, so we're moving to his second point. He's addressed anger, now we're talking about insult. Whoever says raka to their brother is in danger of the fires of hell. It's a graphic language. Uh, specifically, Gehenna is in here, and it's the valley where the trash is burned, is what he's referencing, which is where punishment was executed for people who didn't behave well. And so when we stop and we think about this whole process, raka, you'll be happy to know this. This word is untranslatable. So it's always good when we're trying to teach and the word itself is untranslatable. 
Part of the reason that it's untranslatable is it's more of an attitude than an action. So to, the, the closest thing parallel we have in the English language would be contempt. When you look at or speak with contempt of others, then you are entering into this place in which that is an unacceptable... In some ways, you could follow the logic this way. We tell people not to kill, but that happens to a physical body. Raka happens to someone's reputation. That's when you kill their reputation. That's when you kill their character. That's when you assassinate them verbally. So glad none of us do that. So that he says, this issue of contempt is a condition of our creatureliness, and it's something we ought to surrender. When I stop and I think about this understanding and what's unfolding in the teaching, I, I begin to understand this. What's going on in our culture and in our world is exactly this. It's exactly this narrative. We have a whole culture, not just in the United States, but around the world, and people are angry. They're justifiably angry. They, you ask them why they're angry, they can tell you and they can justify their anger. And everybody's sure their side is right. We have leadership in Washington right now who are content to be angry at one another. And both of them are all, they're right. Except no good comes from that. No good comes from this understanding perspective. You can't run your own life on such an idea you can't run a marriage, you can't run a home, you can't run a family, you can't run a business, you cannot run a country on this idea. That our anger is justified and our side will get our part spoken and we will dominate the other side. Because we're right and they're wrong. And we participate. And Jesus says, listen. You've heard it said, do not commit murder. I tell you, do not be angry with each other. Give that up. It is a place of arrogance. It's a place of pride. It is a place in which you are usurping the knowledge of God, <laughs> pretending that you see everything clearly when all you really see is what you see. And you cannot see what you cannot see. In fact, not only should you not be angry, you should not hold others in contempt. You should not speak words about them that would suggest that you believe in your own superiority. Ah, that's troublesome. I mean, forget politics for a minute. That's just hard to do. That's hard to do in any relationship, isn't it? Because my creatureliness wants to assert my own understandings. It wants to assert my perspective. It wants to assert my sense of justice which is really what this passage is about. It, it's really what he's trying to say. You believe you're right, and out of this belief in your rightness, you've created a whole nature of anger in which you have nurtured this anger because you're right and other people are wrong, and you're, you're feeding and stirring and, and holding and, 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 and tending this anger in your heart and in your mind and out oozes out of your pores is in contempt for others and sometimes that's a look in an eye row isn't it weird anybody know what percentage of 
Communication is body language? How many think it's uh, more than 50%? A lot of girls raised their hands. <laughs> Pretty sure there are studies that show that females watch body language way more than men. Men are like, what? I said I'm sorry. <laughs> what? What do you want from me? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I should probably look it up before I ask the question. Uh, here's a scientific fact. It's a lot. I mean, you know, and, and the subtlety. I, I, I have, I think you know this. I have four daughters and a wife. They don't all live at home now, so that's a break. But I'm just telling you, the radar and sensitivity... And uh, there are times when uh, just the blink of your eyes can get you in trouble. I mean, you can be in certain situations and certain conversations, and you're just like, you just froze. You just freeze. Because, I mean, almost anything can be interpreted as contempt at this moment. I saw you roll your eyes. No, I didn't. I promise. And then I just think, and you know, I think of the new, Jesus saying, listen, I don't want you to practice contempt. And then I think, wow, the subtleties of our contempt, wow, it is super subtle. How often in a normal conversation do I get through a whole conversation without an eye roll or a, or a, oh, wow. We, we convey our superiority. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm talking about this kind of heart spirit. Those who, when the Messiah comes, a time is coming and has now come when we will worship him in spirit and in truth. I know when Messiah comes, he'll explain all of this to us. I who speak to you am he. <laughs> I'm telling you what it is. I'm asking you to not be angry, and I'm asking you to not show contempt for the people around you because these are a lot of the same thing, maybe in some varying degree. Maybe you didn't kill somebody, but you held anger in your heart. Maybe you don't think about the anger in your heart, but you do show contempt for others. And then he reaches the third point. I want you to reconcile. If you're down at the altar and you're offering your gift and you remember that someone has something against you. And this is a very interesting wording. If you remember you have wronged someone. I, I wish you could leave your gift at the altar and go reconcile to people who don't want to be reconciled. But that's not really within our power to do that. That's why later teaching says, as far as it goes with you, live at peace with all people. But if you are at the altar and you remember that, you have, that someone has something against you, you can go and say to them, hey, I'm sorry. And I encourage you. He says, I encourage you to leave your gift. It's not okay to be down at the altar when you know you've wronged someone. Go and make it right. And then he tells this little story. Because... You may be on your way to the judge. And I'm telling you, when you're on the way to court, because somebody's taking you to court, you should reconcile on the way before you get there. Because once you get there and the judge hears your case, you may lose. Because you think you're right, 
But now someone's going to put it to the test. And you may find yourself thrown in prison when it's all over. And that's not a great outcome. So if you don't think you'll thrive in prison, (laughs) you might want to have a a spirit of reconciliation. I want it to be right. I, I don't want just to pretend that we're going to be reconciled. I want the knowledge of God to reign in such a way that not only do we have an outcome of reconciliation, but there's a change in the creatureliness of what has happened between us so that we can truly be reconciled. The word reconciled means made right. It doesn't mean we pretend to be okay. It means we are reconciled together. I used to talk about this word and say, you know, when you bounce your checkbook, it's, you know, you can't reconcile until you find the last penny, but that makes no sense anymore, does it? People are like, what's a checkbook? I just check online. If I've got money, I spend it. <laughs> Made right. We come to this moment of reconciliation. So that we are seeking together this nature of what it means to be people in the kingdom. Don't you wish we had better outcomes? I mean, I, I think about how it is and what that means. And I think about how the systems work in our culture. At what point do we begin to say, you know, it's not really working. And so to be reconciled, to to be people of reconciliation means we are seeking the good of all people. We're, We're seeking the good of everyone. We're not trying to win. We're trying to advance humanity towards your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What a, weird, what a weird system we have become a part of in our culture and in our world. So that we elect one party into leadership and they benefit a certain group of people, but other people are hurt by that. And a few years later, we vote them out and we vote the other group in and then they can benefit a group of people and hurt some other group of people. And then after a few years, we vote them out. And then they benefit a certain group of people, and they hurt another group of people. And while our group of people are in power, benefiting the people we think they should benefit and hurting the people we think they should hurt, we're all going, oh, we're winning. No, we're not. Nobody's winning. Amen? Amen. Our country's not winning. Our culture's not winning. Our world isn't winning. Nobody's winning. You don't win. You don't win when you fight At the expense of others. You don't win in your marriage. You don't win in your home. You don't win in your family. You don't win in your neighborhood. You don't win in your church. You don't win in your community. You don't win in your country. You don't win. That is not winning. Winning is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't know what that is. I don't know how to do that. So I humbly seek. I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I don't get angry because I don't really know if I have... The right to be angry. I don't really know. I don't know how to justify my anger, which would suggest that I know I'm right and somebody else is wrong, and my whole sense of justice has been trampled on. I don't get angry because, in my creatureliness, I humble myself and I say, God, I don't know. In fact, very clearly, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It is mine to repay. Which is God simply saying, Not I'm a wrathful God, I'm going to get everybody. It's saying, It's none of your business. Stop being so twisted up in your heart, in your head. Change your creatureliness. Let the lion and the lamb lie down together. (laughs) 
change the nature of what goes on inside of us. I would rather Jesus preach a whole sermon that says, here are the outcomes we want, now I want you to live in them. And when you think about the actions of Jesus and the teachings, this comes up over and over. The rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you, what do you read? You honor your mother and father. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Da, da, da. Good. How you doing with that? This I have done since my youth. Sure you have. <laughs> Great. One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And the man went away sad because he had great wealth. In other words, I have lived a legalistic, I have had the outcomes. And Jesus says, it's not about the outcomes. It's about a change of your creatureliness. It's about a change of your heart. It's about a change of something in here that looks at the world differently, that sees human beings differently, that you're no longer content to live in the world in which you're winning and other people are losing. Now you have a deep desire in the condition of your heart to see that everyone comes with you, that it is, the good of, it is for the good of everyone. This is hard work. That's why we talk about outcomes. That's why, that's why the, the righteousness of the Pharisees was so attractive. Because you could practice outcomes without ever having to change your creatureliness. I don't know about you, but I would rather have good... I, I use this illustration all the time, but dieting. I'm willing to diet and sacrifice to get the outcome I want. Do I want to stop eating the foods that make me fat? No. Do I want to change my creatureliness? No. No. I just want to suspend it for a little while. Till after the wedding or after the high school reunion or till after whatever. Then I'm going to go back to being me. Amen? That doesn't work that well, does it? But it is what the Pharisees were after. And I think sometimes that's what we're after. And I'll tell you, this is hard to practice with just one other human being. Much less to think about it as a sociological reality. This is hard to practice in your own family. Because when we try to do this as a family, we're like, oh, well, these people kind of get it. But these people, I mean, we're, we're entering the holiday season. Next week, Friday, it will be November. It is officially holiday time. Your families are coming to your house. You cannot hide from this reality, or you are going to their house. How many times? I mean, if you just run this in your head, how many times do you sit in that space with people with anger? Uh. Or you've learned to control that, so now it's just contempt. Oh, brother. <laughs> so Jesus says, I want you to change your creatureliness. A time is coming and has now come when true believers will worship him in spirit and in truth. Not on this mountain and not on that mountain. Not according to your heartfelt beliefs of theological purity not according to their theological beliefs of heartfelt purity, but in the nature of spirit and in the nature of truth, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
your graciousness will show as you surrender your creatureliness to God. Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person that builds their house on solid rock. But whoever hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person that builds their house on sand. God, would you help us? As we think about our condition of our hearts and minds and spirits, we humble ourselves. We confess to you our own weakness and acknowledge that while we understand our need to change, we also feel somewhat helpless to bring that change about. Would you remind us that this is not about us trying harder and working more? This is about us becoming poor in spirit. You've prefaced the whole thing by telling us that we are blessed when we understand that it is not us that changes ourselves, but it is the power of God that changes us. All you ask is for an open heart. All you ask is that we allow you into those places that we hide and harbor and hold on to and that make us feel safe and justified and better about ourselves. And so this morning we want to let go of those. We want to acknowledge that what we're really interested in is your kingdom come, your will be done. And we believe that when that's manifest in this world, when the knowledge of God covers this place like the oceans cover the sea, that there will be a peace and a grace. There'll be something that's good for all human beings, every single one, the ones we understand and the ones we don't. And so as we close, we are seeking a gracious sense of justice, a biblical sense. Hear our responses as we sing these words. Lead us, we pray. If there are those that need to pray, I pray they would seek out a counselor around this room at the close of this service, and that we would respond to you as you speak to our hearts. Lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name, and everybody said together, Amen. Will you stand as we respond? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.